Welcome to a special interview episode of Broadway Radio. My name is Matt Tamanini. As this is Thanksgiving week and the Broadway news tends to be fairly quiet while everybody heads out of town for the holidays, we are going to be bringing you interview episodes throughout this entire week in which I speak to people for a variety of different topics, many of which who have written books which you know is one of my favorite things to talk about here on Broadway Radio. So we will have a different interview every single day this week, Monday through Friday. However, if there is major Broadway news, Ashley, Grace, and or I will be in your podcast feeds to make sure that you are kept up on that. However, there's generally not, but if there is, we will not leave you hanging. But since there is no today on Broadway for today, Monday, November 21st, I do have something that I think you are really going to like. I am talking to an absolute icon, a legend, somebody who has literally done just about everything. I have somebody who's been number one on the Billboard charts, somebody who's written multiple books and won awards for them, and somebody who has multiple Tony Awards. That is, of course, the legendary Rupert Holmes. Rupert is a five-time Tony Award nominee, having won the 1986 awards for both Best Original Score and Best Book of a Musical. He was also nominated for his play in 2003, Say Goodnight Gracie, and then again for Best Book of a Musical and Best Original Score for Curtains. We talk about all of those shows in one way or another, and we also talk about his new play, All Things Equal, The Life and Trials of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which I was fortunate enough to see last month in its world premiere production at the Free Fall Theater in St. Petersburg, Florida. It is currently running at the Bay Street Theater in Sag Harbor, New York through the 27th of November. And then starting in February of 2023, it'll go on a tour around the country, starting again back here in Florida, going to Washington, DC, Phoenix, Arizona, Atlanta, Georgia, Norfolk, Virginia, and back in Jamestown, New York. There's no centralized place where you can get tickets to all of the different venues, but I will put a list of everywhere that it's going to be in the show notes. This episode is also incredibly special because as you will hear at the beginning of the episode, Rupert Holmes, music legend, finds something very singable about my name. So uh, needless to say, I have a new ringtone. With all of that out of the way, here's my conversation with the legendary Rupert Holmes. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Is that you, Matt? It is. How are you? Uh, I'm fine. Congratulations on your name, Matt. <laughs> oh, thank you. I, I've never had anyone congratulate me on that before. It is, it is a superb name. I it appreciate is that. It is, it is mellifluous. Uh, the Matt segues smoothly into the T of Tamanini, and Tamanini is just the most wonderful name. I, it's a great uh, name. I will pass that along to my father. We have had many conversations over the years that both of his parents, obviously his father having the name for his whole life and his mother having it for nearly 75 years, they both pronounced it differently. One would say Tamanini and one would say Tamanini, putting the different vowel sounds on the eyes at the end. So it's been it's been a debate for decades now as of the right way to say it. I understand. It's you say Nini and I say Nini. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I I think I'm sorry to be arbitrary and no. and but I think I have to weigh in and say you have to go with uh, Nini. I think. I think that's generally what I do, but often it's like the and the. Often it'll change based off of the next word in the sentence. Um, but I think generally I'll say Tamanini as well. Yes. I know. I, uh, 
It sings very well. Your name sings well to the tune of Roll Out the Barrel. Matt Tamanini. We'll have a barrel of fun. It's a, a, a very, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. I think you can go about the rest of your day feeling uh, verified, uh, vindicated, and validated. Well, and, I, if you, you know, and if you validate parking, that's even more better. Yeah, well, the, just the fact that you sang my name today, I might have to change my ringtone on my phone to that from now on. So, um, Hey, listen, it works too. If you like Matt Tamanini. Oh, uh, well, look, we, we can get into that. But that is that is a highlight of my life, let alone to just today. So I appreciate that, sir, very much. Um, well, let's just get started. I mean, you dove in right. Oh, no, at this, the is, this is the interview. I just this want to focus it. on your name. I'm totally yeah. fine with that. I'm totally fine yeah. with that. Um, but it, where, am it, I, where am I speaking to you? If I may, I, tr- I try to envision where you are. Where are you? Well, I live in Central Florida in Orlando, but I'm in my office at my desk right now. So I oh, am uh, down true. here. It's about 82 degrees. Are you? Yeah. Uh, are you up north? Are you in New York or thereabouts? Or are you? I'm, at- I'm in the. Uh, if you go to. If you go to. Um, I mean, I. This is the only week that I could say this. But if you go, if you type New York Times in quotes and Rupert Holmes, um, they just did a story it's not it comes out on sunday but it's online right now of of me in my home and we are talking and it tells you where i am which is cold spring new york which is sort of across the river from west point it's uh it's about an hour and a half north of manhattan but right on the hudson river and i'm in my studio Lovely. Um, that's there, and I, I I despise you for being in Orlando because if I if I could have a home somewhere, uh, you know, especially between, um, especially in in January and February and March here when it's dark and cold, I I, w- I would love no place more than Orlando. Well, um, just just yeah. just to easy access to many amusement parks and yes. that would be very happy for me. absolutely and i'm i'm originally from ohio and from the midwest so about eight years ago i moved to orlando followed some family down here and i don't know that i could do the cold again i, I mean i make trips up to new york about every other month but i try to time them around the less cold times of the year because yeah. I, I my yeah. blood has thinned and i just can't take it anymore yeah. what happens to me is around november it's by the way for me. It's not just the cold. It's also uh, the dark, yeah, the, the seasonal it, affective it, disorder, those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. Pitch black at four in the afternoon is unspeakable, you know. And there's yeah. no hope. There's yeah. despair. Yeah. Uh, so what I usually do is in November, I will type the words in quotes. I will type all the names of my plays uh, into Google <laughs> and then type Florida. And when I see that there is a production in January in Naples or in Jupiter, uh, Jupiter mm-hmm. or so I'll say, you know, I think they need me. <laughs> I think they need me down there. And, uh, and I will come down and, and pretend that I'm there to be supportive. And really, I just want any excuse to, to yeah. get some sunlight, you know? Well, I saw, I saw Drood at Vero Beach's Riverside Theater a couple years ago. It was a fantastic production. I don't know if yeah. you saw it or not, but I, warm I weather. Don't think I, I, I read about it, uh, and I think I saw photos of it. I don't 
think I made it. That was before I had landed on this tactic of just finding where in Florida any of my work is between uh, November and March, you know? Well, and well, let's get into your work because I think this will give you a, a very interesting thing uh, to kind of plot out over the next few months because I recently saw the world premiere of All Things Equal down here in Florida as well at the Free Fall Theater, and it is getting ready to go on um, a sort of a, a national tour. It's it's in uh, Sag Harbor right now, but in 2023 in February, it starts to hit a lot of different places, including Delray Beach back here in Florida. So I don't mm-hmm. know uh, which of these places you have been to or will be to, but as I went through this, um, the press release of, of uh, All Things Equal, and of course I know so much of your work, but it I, it hit me that I didn't really realize all of the different things that you do. I also have a copy of the next Murder Your Employer book, McMaster's Guide to Homicide, um, sitting here that I just got it, I think, two days ago. It's coming out in February. And I wonder, and even it, I went to your website and it just lists all of these different things, author, composer, playwright. Do you just consider yourself a writer or do you have one thing that you hang your hat on and then everything else kind of is a satellite to that? Or does it change based off of the project that you're working on at the time? You know, um, I, I consider myself um, very lucky because I, I acquired a number of different skills growing up. So um, at a time when pop songwriters... Uh, played guitar and didn't read music, and I was trying to get into the music business, I had uh, the fact that I had been a trained classical musician. Um, I could write, not only notate music, but I could arrange and fully orchestrate my work. Uh, But growing up, I always wanted to tell stories, always. But I also always wanted to write music. And that's sort of, um, I'm just... Uh, I hope that I'm a creative person with a lot of different uh, skills uh, that I can access. And I, I, I just choose what from my skill set will best, um, uh, I, I try to apply, I, it's sort of like Mission Impossible at the beginning of the episode, they would, Peter Graves would always go through the photos and pick which members of the, um, of his possible uh, 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 his his uh, arsenal of, of team, yeah. human beings, yeah, would comprise his team, and uh, and he'd always discard one photo, like no, not him for this job, and he always with that that poor face on that photo, and somehow he always amazingly picked the people who were regulars on the series, but Shocking. there would always be maybe one. So I, I'm kind of like that when I come to any um, uh, project that I'm going to work on, um, I invariably come to it as a writer, but I also come to it possibly as a composer. Um, so, uh, for example, I did a, a play that originated in uh, Florida at the Broward Center, and then it ended up going to the uh, Coconut Grove Playhouse, and then it went from there directly to Broadway, a one-actor show called Say Goodnight Gracie. And I wrote the play, but I also wrote it knowing where I would want to bring in some incidental and transitional music. And I knew where I would have him sing Sweet Adeline, and I actually ended up doing the vocals of him as a boy, sped up my voice, and did the vocals of him singing Sweet Adeline as a boy. And I knew that at one point he and uh, George Burns and Gracie Allen uh, would uh, do um, 
the song T for Two, and I wrote and arranged a kind of tap dance, soft shoe version of that. So I never sat down and thought, um, okay, so I'm, uh, you know, am I, I am now today a writer and arranger and composer. I thought I'm Rupert Holmes and I'm trying to create this play, and what are the things that I can bring to it creatively that will enhance every aspect of it? When I wrote the TV series Remember When, uh, which is, which you can is now on AMC Finally. Plus. Yes, Finally. at last. Yeah, but I would write. I wrote virtually every script of the fifty-six episodes of that show. But as I wrote the script, there would sometimes be a jingle that they would. It was set in nineteen thirty-nine at a radio station, and they would do commercials, or there would be themes for the shows that they did, and I would know what those themes would be. Uh, I could hear it. Or when someone made a speech at the end and it was touching, I thought, I'll bring in the strings right there. And then I would go and um, record the string section after I had written the script and after it had been filmed, knowing exactly what I wanted to bring musically to it. So how much music, how much uh, how much I bring to something is just, I just have a kind of gunny sack of uh, of things, skills I've acquired over the years. And and uh, I... I pick them at, at will for each project and tailor it. So, um, it, it, you know, I don't, I don't think of myself with all the people uh, list what I am with all those hyphens, and I don't think of it that way. I just think I'm me, and that's what I do. Yeah. Well, I, it's interesting because you talk about all of the different ways that you can bring in all of those different um, skills from your repertoire into a specific show. But when you sit down to write something, when you have the idea of something like telling the story of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, like with all things equal, uh, I don't know if that's necessarily one that you ever considered, hey, maybe this is a musical or whether it's a one-person show, but did, how do you, when you say, this is the story I want to tell. Do you go through the process of trying to visualize or imagine it as a one-person show, as a play with multiple people, as a TV show, like Remember When, or as a musical? You've done all of these things. So is it just start with the story and then figure it out from there? Or do you always know this is the, the story I want to tell, but it makes most sense to do it in this format as a one-person show or something else? Matt, I think I think it's the latter. I think it's what you've just said. I think that uh, the, the, the frame makes me decide what to put in the picture. Um, and I'm aware, having, you know, I've written this, uh, the Murder Your Employer, The McMaster's Guide to Homicide. That's volume one of a new series. That's a novel. I've written three novels. I've written um, a, a tremendous amount of episodes of a, a TV series. Um, I've written uh, for... Uh, film. I've written, obviously, for the Broadway stage. I've written musicals. I've written musicals where I am the book writer. I've written musicals where I'm the book writer and the lyricist. Uh, musicals where I've written everything uh, and done the orchestrations. And and uh, uh, but but each format that I'm working in changes the nature of what I'm reaching for uh, creatively. And f for this show, for for all things equal, um, I thought. There's a huge difference in terms of the tenor and tone of a show with actors playing roles and a one-actor show where the actor is going to be addressing the audience. Because I, I actually have to figure out not just who the... It's easy to figure out who the actor is playing. It's the person that the play is about. But who is the audience playing? 
it's I, I never think of it. I think of an audience to my work like Kool-Aid must think of water. You know, it, does, it yeah. isn't Kool-Aid until there's water. And, and I think who, what role will the audience play? When she talks to you, is 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 there going to be a wall between you? And is she going to just start off by saying, "I was born in da 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 da, and I did this, and I went there, and then I wrote," and that to me isn't theater. But if you can find a way for the person on stage to be having uh, a relationship with the audience, that they can fit themselves into that role themselves, it becomes a conspiracy between the two of them. It's like we're having a secret time here. Yes, there may be 150, 250 people in the audience, but but uh, but this is this is sort of private. And I I think if you think about the language, when you're alone with the Pope, if you're alone with the king, you have an audience with the king. You have an audience with the Pope. And and so the role of audience is is uh, uh, it's it both means a private conversation. You get to finally ask the king something that that isn't in a speech. See, I've you know when you made that decision to behead all those people, what were you thinking? Uh, you you get this quiet time, this personal time. You're in a coffee shop with the king, and you're having coffee. Um, so, I in terms of all things equal. Uh, I knew that it would be about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but I had to find who is she talking to, and then is that something that anyone could, after a few minutes of suspension of disbelief, slip themselves into that role too? And it seems, it seems uh, all the reports I've had and, and people and the feedback and reviews tell me that it, it does seem to work, that you do feel like you are having a personal time with her that that is different from seeing her on in a clip on television, seeing her, <clears throat> um, hearing her, reading her books. Uh, it, this is more where she's confiding in you and you're both fascinated and amused by much of what she has to share. Yeah, and, and so much so that I actually also want to know the backstory of the person she's talking to, who the audience is presumably playing, as you expect, because it was such a fascinating conversation in the way that she kind of let this person into her confidence, so to speak. Um, I was kind of so engrossed by that relationship, which wasn't a relationship that she'd had for a long time. But the fact that if anybody is getting a private audience, like you said, with a Supreme Court justice, they have to be a pretty interesting person, too. So I, I maybe that'll be a follow up piece for you. But I was interested <laughs> in who that person was um, as well. When you do one person shows, as you mentioned, uh, say goodnight, Gracie, this is not the first time that you've done something like this. How important is finding somebody to play that part um, in your process? Do you do you start just by saying this is the character I'm writing and then we'll figure out the actor later? Or do you ever start with somebody? Um, do you mold it as somebody's landed on? What is the process? Because when it's just one person, so much of who that individual is as a performer has to seep over into the character, whether it's a real life person or not. Yeah, it, it's um, it's it's challenging and it's uh, an honor to see the work of actors and 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 um, value and respect what they're doing, and then to have to make a decision of but who is going to be able to embody that? The mm -hmm. first thing is, in the, in the case of um, All Things Equal and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, I needed someone uh, who projected a soulfulness and yet also was 
um, tough and feisty. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was nothing if not tough as nails. And, um, and, and she had great spirit. And I wasn't looking for someone who would, you know, that you would mistake for Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the street. But I was looking for someone who could, who would enjoy the challenge of holding the stage for 90 minutes and keeping an audience wrapped with the tension and with humor. So a, a lot of actors, as they begin to realize what that would entail, they kind of back off on their one, their desire to do the role. And even you can tell in, in conversing with them that they're just not going to be able to go the distance. They're, it's just going to be too hard for them. And, um, and, and uh, with uh, Michelle, uh, Michelle Azar, uh, it, it's fascinating because I, I can tell from the responses of the audience that even though they intellectually know, and if they were challenged in that moment, if someone said, is that really Ruth Bader Ginsburg there? They would say, well, no, I know that's an actor. But in point of fact, their response in terms of applause to things that she says um, is, is sort of a, some of the applause is a good for you. That's, we're with you. And... Uh, I had this experience, again, with the, the play about the life of George Burns, comedian George Burns. At one point on Broadway, he would say, um, I won an Oscar and I was 80 years old. And the audience would applaud and I'd say, isn't that wonderful? They're applauding him. They are now believing that that's George Burns. You wouldn't applaud an actor saying he was 80 years old or, or even saying I was 80 years old if you know it's he's inhabiting he's playing a part yeah. but if you start to lose uh, if you let yourself start to believe that you're having this audience with this person you say yeah that will good for you i have to applaud that and they're applauding um so frequently through the show that i know that they're bonding with her and they think that she's um and it and by the way, uh, it's not a trick on the audience because we are letting the audience in on a lot of uh, background on her as a human being that uh, gets sort of lost in the translation uh, when we think of her as an icon. And the, one of the reasons I wrote the play was because I could tell, I, I wanted to make sure that there was something that would stop her from just becoming a trope just becoming an icon, a symbol. That's all wonderful. It's great to put, she's going to be on a stamp next year. That's terrific. But she was a person and that she took the stands that she did, that she figured out ways to advance uh, human rights, um, that she did all this in the real world as a, a person with, you know, she didn't come from wealth at all. Uh, and and in one generation, she was able to full, completely fulfill the dream that her mother might have had, but because it was one generation earlier, she could not pursue. So um, I, 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 I think it's really um, Im important to uh, convey the humanity of the person rather than just their accomplishments. That, that, that's what I call a, and then I wrote show. That's where a, a songwriter comes out and just plays a medley of hits. What you want to know is why did you write those songs? What made you, you it's just as interesting to learn what was, what caused the heartbreak or the hope that caused them to write the song in the first place, not just the song itself. And I guess the next question is you have your actor to play Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but where did the impetus to write a play about 
Ruth Bader Ginsburg come from? I, I imagine that this was something that could have possibly been brought on by her passing. But was, what was it about her life and her story that grabbed you so much that you thought, I want to dedicate time to putting it down in some sort of dramatic fashion? It's a, as with anything, it's never one, one cause and one effect. It's usually a, a, a medley, a constellation of causes. Um, in my case, I'd always admired Ruth Bader Ginsburg greatly. Um, and uh, because she reminded me of my wife. Uh, my wife was uh, an orphan when she was uh, a teenager. She'd, all she had in the world was a, um, uh, a crazy aunt uh, and a, a, a goofy boyfriend, and I was the goofy boyfriend, so that wasn't much help to her right there. <laughs> yeah. And, and she, when she started out, um, in high, when she was going to go to college, uh, we went to the same school together, and I knew the counselors at, at the high school were saying, you know, uh, community college, that's a big dream for you. Uh, you could probably get in. And she didn't have that feeling about herself. Um, she went to Boston University, and then um, after even just a few months there, she thought, I can do better then. She applied to uh, Barnard, and she's a Barnard graduate. And she became a wonderful teacher, but one day she looked up and said, I've always wanted to be an attorney. I love law and fighting for principles and, and the fact that it's all argued in a civil way in a, in, 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 in a court, and, it's, and everyone gets their day and moment in court. And so she went out um, with a, a, a daughter, our daughter, and went back to law school. And so she, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, was a, a Columbia graduate as well as a Harvard uh, Law School graduate. Um, technically, she she attended Harvard Law School, but she finished her degree at, at uh, Columbia. Columbia and Barnard are sister schools. Uh, her first job, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, first job teaching, the only job she could get. No, she graduated, uh, she graduated magna cum laude at both Harvard and Columbia. She was on the Law Review Board of both of them, and when she got out of college, because she was a woman, because she had a child, um, because of the times, she could not get a job in a law firm. Magna cum laude, you know, graduating with honors from Harvard and Columbia, and you can't, she couldn't get a job. No one would take her, so she had to become a teacher, and where did she teach? She taught at Rutgers, was the first place to um, have a, a, a female teacher. That's where my wife went to get her law degree. Oh, wow. So. This parallelism, and, and by the way, when she was at Rutgers, it was explained to her that your salary will be lower than men because men have to support a family. And she was the first full-time tenured professor, female professor at Columbia. And by the way, this was not, we're not talking about the 1940s, we're not talking about the 1950s. This was well into the 60s that, that this kind of attitude and into the 70s, uh, this wall for women was, was put right in front of any path they wanted to pursue. So I had always had great empathy for her. I also, um, I, I, I'm a classical musician. My brother is, a, is an opera singer. He's been a fixture of the Metropolitan Opera for uh, some 50 years. And uh, I knew about her love of opera, that the, just the way they're, you know, I, I will do anything for the New York Mets baseball team, and they break my heart every year. Her New York Mets was opera. Uh, and, and the fact that uh, Justice Scalia, who was 
diametrically opposed to absolutely everything she believed in. The fact that he loved opera as much as she did made them bond and be the closest of friends as long as it wasn't about um, political issues and, and judicial rulings. So um, I, I immediately, uh, as, as I said a little earlier, when she died, yes, this was launched by that. When she died, I thought, gee, I just don't want her to become a, a cartoon in The New Yorker. I don't want a cartoon. She's so easy to make a caricature of with her kind of robes and the collar that she wore. And I'm afraid she's just going to be a trope. She's just going to be quotes, single quotes here and there. And yet, as with anyone that becomes legendary, they, they are a human being like anyone else. And the fact that they are, their humanity is what makes their accomplishments even more uh, remarkable. So I began to think about um, what, how you could ever bring her to life. A play, to me, with, uh, with a, a large cast wouldn't work because um, it, the second that you have actors on a stage conversing with each other, they're not conversing with you and you know it and you're out of the frame and you're watching, which is fine. A, a theater is usually a spectator sport. But in terms of the goal that I had for this show, I realized that a, a, a one-actor show would be the way to go for this. Uh, I immediately knew that I would make opera, real opera, the opera that she loved and could make her heart sing, would be a thread throughout the whole show. And uh, n not writing my ori any original music, but using the opera that she cared about, and that I could, I would know where to what what arias might segue us into different uh, sections of her story. And then, of course, in addition to all that, we were at the height of the lockdown of the pandemic. Everything, all theater had shut down. Uh, I had a wonderful tour of my musical curtains going on in the United Kingdom. They had just left London. I was going to fly over and see the show in the town I was born in, in England, even though I'm an American, but I was born in England. Um, and, uh, and suddenly the whole tour was canceled. All shows were canceled. It's the first time in 40 years that there was no production of The Mystery of Edwin Drood going on anywhere because they all had to be closed down. And I thought, and you know, this would be, if there is going to be any theater, it may be that initially, as we come back to opening doors, uh, a one-actor show is, is the one I should put front, cent front and center on my, on my workbench because this is a play that could arguably be produced even during um, or maybe just post the lockdown or the long-awaited vaccine. And so circumstances, her death, the shutdown of theater, my own respect for my wife and her uh, law career and her, her taking on a lot of challenges that people said, no, don't you worry uh, yourself about that, um, being patronized. All of that came into, suddenly made this uh, a project that I wanted to do and, and wanted to do here and now. Well, all of that really comes through and in the show and hearing kind of the background of the connections between um, Justice Ginsburg and your wife, it really even makes it even more personal because we hear so much about how her ambitions and her career and her dreams were not only impacted by but influenced by her own personal life. I, I think that is, uh, it's really even more beautiful than it was when I saw it on stage. So, uh, so thank you for sharing that. I, I, I will have a couple more things that I have to hit on here real quick, because 
as you said, you have a lot of things going on and some of them have been delayed because of the pandemic. But one show that recently had a very well received run is one that has been delayed even longer. And that was The Nutty Professor that um, got a run up in Maine over the summer. It's been a while with that one um, kind of finally making its way. It's been on stages before. But when you see a show that you've worked on for so long, getting a production like that at Algonquit, what does it mean to you that it is finally kind of seeing, uh, not the light of day, because like I said, it's people have seen it before, but having an opportunity to have a, a high level production like that finally in front of audiences? Well, it, first of all, it's, it, it was incredibly gratifying. And just to have, to hear an audience, um, you know, something we've, we've lost as, as theater has become more and more serious. And that's not bad, but there's, you know, it's the masks of theater are comedy as well as tragedy. Um, uh, the, um, the sound of an audience laughing at the lyrics was magic for me. Uh, this the Nutty Professor has is a musical that had a, a real rough go for a while. Not because of any, it was always um, liked by the, loved by the audiences, frankly, and uh, the reviews had always been great for it. But there were obstacles that had nothing to do with the the musical itself. Um, I wrote the Nutty Professor with one of the greatest theatrical pe- creatives ever, Marvin Hamlish, who obviously. Um, your listeners know a chorus line and the way we were and they're playing our song and so many other wonderful tunes. And I, uh, Marvin was the composer and uh, I'm looking at his piano bench right now, which was a gift from his widow to me. And, uh, and I got to be the lyricist with, to Marvin's tunes and also the book writer of the, of the adaptation of Jerry Lewis's classic, mus- uh, classic movie. And uh, and it and the we did it. We raised it first uh, at the gigantic Tennessee Performing Arts Center um, in Nashville, and like two, an audience of two thousand, they loved the show. We won, um, uh, I think, twelve um, uh, uh, of the local awards there, uh, including not just best musical but best new work. Uh, and and it was amazing that we had been able to. The story is still set in 1960, but we were able to make it um, a, a, a musical about being comfortable in your own skin, in accepting who you are. It was about bullying. It was about the right way to deal with bullying. It was a very touching movie. Uh, movie, listen to me. It was a very <laughs> touching musical. Um, and uh, I wished I had the Kleenex concession in the lobby because uh, there were all these grown men going, oh, our lights are really bright, aren't they? It always makes my eyes water as they walked out of the show. But then a, a series of tragic events happened. Right in the middle of the run, uh, Marvin died. We hadn't, that we never, I, I never knew that the last time I saw him was going to be the last time I saw him. And um, you know, I saw him there while we were rehearsing in, in Nashville. And... Um, he died, and then Jerry Lewis died, and all, and then the producer of the pr- initial production um, didn't have any money, ran out of money. <clears throat> he lost the rights, and and it, it, when you do a musical adaptation of a movie, um, there's a off, there's an awful lot of people involved in that process who have to sign off on it, and it took ten years, ten years, um, uh, to 
get all the legal issues resolved, to get everybody to say, okay, we're back on board. Yes, you can do this. I owned the music and the lyrics. Marvin owned the, i sorry, I owned the lyrics and the book. Marvin owned the uh, uh, music. Uh, Jerry Lewis estate owned the, the underlying property. And to get all of that put back together again and get Humpty Dumpty to be an egg um, uh, took really 10 years of legal maneuvering that had nothing to do with art. It just had to do with um, wheeling and dealing. And we finally got to do it at the Ogunquit Playhouse, where I had actually had a couple of shows uh, performed in years gone by. It's a wonderful theater, about 500-seat theater, I imagine, 600 perhaps. Um, great band, incredible cast, including a leading man who stepped in with one... He, he stepped into the role. We had our leading uh, man... Uh, was uh, had an injury, had to leave the part, and a person who had never done the role, wasn't an understudy, just a person who was an incredibly talented uh, human being, came in, took over the role, did a masterful job with it, and suddenly we have this bubbling um, success um, up there in Agunquit, and now we're looking at a possible... A 25 city tour and also raising some other raising it in some other sit-down venues and also a UK tour a United Kingdom tour so so it, it it was in suspended animation for 10 years and um, now I think it's uh, waking finally uh, after that long sleep yeah I knew some of those details obviously with um, Marvin and Jerry's passing I don't I don't think I knew all of the different contractual and legal ramifications of that though that's I staggering, but I'm so glad that it's getting an opportunity to finally be seen as widely as it should have been. Well, I, you've been so generous with your time. I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up here, kind of bringing things back to all things equal. This is a show, like we've said, it's a one-person show and has deeply personal connections, not only to your own life, but I think there are so many people around the country who have very personal feelings about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, whether it was as a Supreme Court justice or kind of this cultural icon, which you kind of uh, have some fun with a little bit in the show itself. But yeah. as, this, as this show kind of starts to go out and and play different places across the country, as I said, it's going to be here in Florida, but it also is going to play in Washington, D.C. and in the Northeast and into the, the Midwest and even out in places like Phoenix, Arizona. What are you hoping that these different audiences from across the country get out of seeing this cultural and legal icon in this way? What are you hoping they take away from seeing this show specifically? Well, we live in very um, politically volatile times. And uh, one of the worst things about the world uh, right now is that we've lost civility. Um, uh, it's, it's okay to say the worst thing you can possibly say about someone. Uh, I'm not saying that it is okay, but it's people are thinking, uh, people are saying things and confronting each other with language and attitudes and, and, and barely veiled bigotry that, that we all knew would not fly years ago. And somehow, uh, someone came along and said, it's okay. You don't have to. You, we, we can we can say terrible things. Um, that's all right. And and uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, whether you agreed with her politically or not, she loved the Supreme Court. Even when uh, she she thought that the being a voice of dissent 
was just as important as winning. If you, it was good to win, and and she got the nickname the the notorious RBG, and uh, I like to think she enjoyed being the victorious RBG as well. Uh, but she knew that dissent, articulating the objection to something, pointing out why it's unfair or unkind, was just as important as saying we won, and our side won. And she could make sense. She could come and reason with people who were not necessarily uh, 100% in agreement with her. And she had to plead her cases before she ever became a Supreme Court justice when she fought for human rights. And she did a marvelous thing of fighting for men's rights as a way of proving that women should have those equal rights too. It was a marvelous tactic. And, and she had to argue her cases in front of people who were predisposed to be condescending and ignore her. And she had to learn how do you let logic and reason and human kindness uh, flourish in a poisonous uh, environment. And um, I'm hoping that people will be uplifted um, by hearing her voice and having this special audience, being that special audience for her, by having an audience with her, and be reminded uh, of our, that, there, that we are a decent people and uh, that all things being equal, we should be equal to the task of respecting each other as human beings. Yeah, that's wonderful. And that is very much the the message and the hope that I took away from seeing it. And I'm very excited for other folks to see it around the country here um, in New York right now, but then starting its tour in February of 2023. Well, I have absolutely been delighted by this conversation and hope that we can do it again in the future. I, like I said, I got the the pre-reading uh, galley for um, Murder Your Employer, so I'm very excited to dive into this. And you mentioned Remember When uh, earlier, and I just have so many fond memories of watching that show when I was younger, when it was originally on. And I, like you, share the excitement that it is finally available to stream. I am a longtime AMC Plus subscriber, so very much excited about having the opportunity to watch that series again. But thank you so much for all of your time and uh, and hopefully uh, we'll have a chance to talk about some other things in the future and I can hear you sing my name one more time or something like that. <laughs> well, I, I hope you enjoy reading Murder Your Employer. It is one of the, I think it's one of the best things I've ever created. Oh, wow. And I think, I think it's very, yeah, I, I put it on the level of uh, my best work. And uh, and it's also quite amusing, even though it's, uh, I think it's a page turner. I think you'll be rooting. And to, uh, and it's, it has a, it's a, allows you to retreat into this incredibly luxurious um, university that is dedicated for people who have a good reason to want to do away with another person. It's a college uh, where you um, do uh, you learn how to do in others as you would have others do you in. And uh, it's, so it's, it's dark humor, but it's uh, very entertaining, and it, it comes out in February. You have an advanced copy. I hope you'll let me know how you feel about it when you read it. I absolutely will. And to hear you say you put it up there with some of your best work, that, that's a pretty high bar. So that makes me even more excited than I already was. Oh, well, I'm just trying to encourage you to read the first chapter. I think after you've read the first chapter, I think you'll be hooked and you'll you'll read the rest. Well, I am going to be on a plane um, a week from tomorrow. So this is going to be what I'm taking with me to uh, to read it on my way actually up to New York. So uh, oh, I'm very excited about that. So thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And I look forward to chatting with you about the book in the future. Same for me. And thank you. It's been a lot of fun and I've enjoyed this greatly. Mm -hmm. 